We just sang, by thine own sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. And we get a picture of what that will look like in our text this morning. Now, the very first chapter of the Bible, kids, you know what that's about, right? In the beginning, what did God do? He created the heavens and the earth. And Adam and Eve, we know, we read, were placed in the Garden of Eden, and they enjoyed this, this, this perfect, idyllic paradise. But just in two chapters over, chapter 3, we read that they rebelled against God, they sinned, and the world which God had created perfect was placed under a curse. And Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise. In the late 16, or mid-1600s, there was an epic poem written about this by John Milton called Paradise Lost. Well, this morning we come to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, and we will see, as John describes, paradise restored. Now, you remember chapter 21, John has received this vision of New Jerusalem, and we talked about this uh, in my last message, I guess, four weeks ago. Uh, but I know you remember every word of it, right? Of course we all do. Um, but recognizing in, in, in this new Jerusalem that God makes all things new, that there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain, that the physical effects of the curse are lifted. But even better than that, uh, he says in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. No longer will we cry out uh, uh, for a, a greater sense of the presence of God. No longer will we find ourselves dry in a dry and weary land. We'll dwell in the presence of the Lord, and we will see, as John describes in the following verses, the unspeakable glory of the church in heaven, the new Jerusalem, we will see that, <clears throat> see that there's no temple necessary because God is going to dwell among his people. There's no light necessary because God's glory will be our light. We will enjoy perfect safety and security so the gates of the city will never, ever need to be closed. And there will be perfect purity. Nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem. So, as we read a moment ago in chapter 22, it's a continuation of this vision as uh, the angel turns John's attention to some new and glorious features of New Jerusalem. There are really four features that he describes here. And the first thing that John describes is the river of life. Verse 1 and 2, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God into the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Now, water, life-giving water, is a familiar image that Scripture brings up over and over and over again. You remember in the Exodus that the children of Israel had left Egypt. They, they crossed through the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness, and there's no water to be found. And uh, there were 600,000 men plus the women and children. Where are we going to get water to slake the thirst of this mass of people? That was the burning question in their minds. And in chapter 17 in Exodus, we find that God provided water that came from a rock. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that that rock was Christ. He is the source of that water. 
In Isaiah 55 verse 1, uh, we find the Lord, as it were, uh, a, 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 a merchant out in the marketplace crying out, Come old, uh, you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. This invitation to slake our thirsts at his fountain of living water. And we see in the Scriptures, living water is a symbol for this spiritual life, this spiritual refreshing that comes from our relationship with God. In Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug out for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. Men have chosen that which will leave them thirsty and empty and dry rather than the spring of living water. How how can that possibly make sense? And yet that is the nature, of the, or that's the condition of the natural man. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets with a woman at the well, and he says, woman, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. In John 7, Jesus stands up on the great day of the festival, and he says, uh, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. So we find this, this theme of living water throughout the New Testament and the Old as well. And here in Revelation 22, the fulfillment of these, uh, of these symbols, of these promises, because living water flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Now, back in John 7, uh, after Jesus makes that proclamation, John makes the comment that Jesus, when he speaks of living water, is actually speaking of the Holy Spirit, which emphasizes that the Spirit of God uh, uh, uses or, or, or comes to us and ministers Christ to us so that He alone satisfies those deepest longings of our soul. But I want you to just to think for a moment. Here we have the throne of the Father and of the Lamb and the Holy Spirit flowing from that throne. We see this picture of the Trinity in heaven once again. But the symbol also emphasizes that salvation is entirely from the Lord. This living water flows from the throne. It's something that God freely gives. Every good and perfect gift in this life comes from the Father lights, but every good and perfect gift in that life also comes from our God. Now, John also tells us that this water is bright as crystal. Why would he give us that detail? Well, think about the joys that we experience in this life. It's like, uh, do we actually have water that's 100% pure with no impurities whatsoever? I'm not sure that's even possible in this world. Uh, but he points to this living water as being perfectly pure, absolutely unmixed by any impurities. Uh, even the sweetest and most intimate blessings of this life uh, are mixed, are tainted to a degree with some degree of, of struggle, of frustration. In fact, the sweetest fellowship you and I can enjoy with the Lord is accompanied by that keen sense that there's so much more we long for and yet cannot yet Enjoy. We cannot yet enter into his presence. We, uh, we have not yet been finished with our contending with sin. We still have to battle a hostile world around us and an enemy of our souls. So even when we enjoy sweet fellowship with the Lord, there's that awareness of not yet. There's so much more we long for. But on that day, the crystal clear water of life will point to the fact that those joys of heaven will be entirely unmixed by any sorrow or any frustration, or any disappointment, any, any struggling to lay hold of more of an experience of the favorable presence of God, it will be ours in richest possible abundance. The deepest longings of our soul will be fully satisfied. Just stop and think. The deepest 
longings of your soul satisfied. How wonderful and how glorious that would be. And John says this, this water flows through the middle of the street of the city, the New Jerusalem. Now, in our previous message, we, we looked at chapters 20, chapter 21, verse 2, which says the New Jerusalem was like a bride prepared for her bridegroom. And uh, I believe based on that statement and some others, the New Jerusalem is primarily referring not to the dwelling place of the people of God. I believe it's referring to the bride, to the church. That's us. And we are pictured by this vast, this vast edifice, this vast city, which is in the new heaven and in the new earth, pointing to the saints of God in glory. Now, it is important to recognize in the book of Revelation that symbols are often very elastic, all right? Uh, how is it possible for the tree of life to be growing on both sides of the river of life? Don't get caught up with those kind of details. These symbols are elastic, and so, is it possible that the New Jerusalem could uh, refer to the church and also to the dwelling place of the church? Uh, could it be one or the other or both? And uh, the point is, it doesn't really make a lot of difference because the main point is the wonder and the beauty and the glory and the magnificence of our dwelling in the new heaven and the new earth. So, I don't want to get caught up. Is it the church? Is it where the church lives? It's the glory that we're to be consumed with. But we see here this, this river of life flowing from the throne of God, pointing to eternal life and abundant life. And, and uh, there's this beautiful picture if we are that new Jerusalem and this river is flowing in us and through us and to us from our God. How wondrous that will be. And the effect, what's the impact of this living water flowing to us and in us and through us? Uh, Psalm 46 says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. Well, if the city of God is the holy place where God dwells, he dwells in his people. And a city is not so much glad as people are glad. So again, I, I, I tend toward that. But whatever, this water makes our hearts rejoice. It gives us gladness. We can experience sips from that fountain. But then we'll drink deeply from the river of the water of life. That points to uh, 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 life as God intended in its very fullest and most glorious sense. Our souls will be satisfied by feasting on our God and delighting in Him. I don't know how many of you probably, uh, like in my house, we feasted this week for Thanksgiving to the place where some of us were probably a little uncomfortable. Maybe we ate more than we probably should have. And we're going, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Remember that? Nobody will ever say that in heaven. We'll feast and we'll feast and we'll feast. And we can't get enough. We won't have a sense that I don't have enough. It's just we can't get enough. Because God's glory will be free and unbounded and will be ours in its fullness. Now, think about when you first became a Christian. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. What happens when you're converted? Well, Ephesians 2 says he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. It talks about the fact that we're redeemed from the curse and from bondage to sin. We're justified. We're declared righteous in the sight of God. And because of that, we have peace with God. We're adopted. 
which means we're brought into the family of God and we're called his precious sons and daughters, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Important statement. It tells us that our eyes have been opened. We've been enlightened to the knowledge of God and the glory of Christ and the mystery of his will. And it tells us we've been united with Jesus. We've been uh, made one with him in his death, in his burial, his resurrection, and the new life that we have in union with Christ. And it tells us we've been sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All these are realities that are given to every single Christian. And they're given the day you're converted, the day you're born again. And as you grow in your faith, they become more and more real, more and more, uh, uh, they express themselves more and more fully. But let me ask you this. How many of you fully enjoy the greatness of any one of these blessings? We think about these spiritual blessings and we recite them, we talk about them. But how many of you can say, I am enjoying to the very fullest extent my justification? I am enjoying to the very fullest extent my union with Jesus Christ or my sealing and my indwelling by the Holy Spirit. The reality is we often wrestle and we struggle to lay hold of these realities in our experience. We know they're true. We, we believe them by faith, but uh, even as, as the psalmist says, we yearn, we long, like our, 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 our souls are in a dry and weary land. But in that day, there will be no dryness and no weariness. We will drink freely from the river of life. The reality is we all struggle to some extent to delight in Christ, to know the depth of his love. That's why Paul prays that God would strengthen us with power in the inner man so that we might, together with all the saints, grasp how wide and high and deep and long is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. On that day, we'll get it, and it will get us, and we will be filled with the fullness of God. We don't know the vast dimensions of his love but that yet, but we will on that day. He is the longing of our hearts. Whether your heart, uh, whether, whether in your heart you're running after uh, other things that you might be craving for, the, for a time, none of them will satisfy. It's like broken cisterns that hold no water. God alone is that fountain of living water. He is the one who will satisfy the very deepest longings of our hearts. And if you've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good, You've, you've experienced something of the first fruits, but you've not experienced the full harvest yet. You know something of his kindness, something of his love, something of the joy, inexpressible and full of glory. But, but every time you read that, Paul says, I rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. If you're anything like me, you go, oh, that I really knew that every single moment of my day. There's something that longs to lay hold of that uh, and yet, it's only a faint glimmer that we can actually experience. The longing of our souls, we continue to wait. The, the, psalm, or the, the hymn writer had it right when he said in the, uh, wrote in the sands of time, he says, Oh Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. See, we're tasting the streams today. And oh, that God would give us more and more streams to taste. But he tells us, set your heart, look forward to that deep, that deep river of life from which we drink 
and find satisfaction. God is that river. He will satisfy the, the deepest longings of our hearts with the only thing that can truly satisfy our souls, and that's himself. We'll see him as he is. We'll know him. We will be with him. Our souls will delight in him, and we'll be filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. So that's the first thing that John describes, this river of living water. But secondly, he describes the tree of life in verse 2. He says, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Can you imagine having a tree in your backyard, and one month you go out and you pick apples? The next month you go out and you pick peaches. The next month you go out and you pick figs. And month after month, a different delightful fruit you pick from that tree. Well, again, the symbols in Revelation are quite elastic, aren't they? A tree growing on both sides of the river, growing 12 different kinds of fruit. Uh, What is it pointing to? It's pointing to the abundance of God's goodness and God's gift to us. That eternal existence, dwelling with God and Him with His people. Remember back in in, in, uh, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were in the garden and they succumbed to Satan's seduction and temptation, and they, they sinned against God. They rebelled, and the Lord cast them out of the garden. And he says this. is very, very instructive. In, Revel- in Genesis 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. He, they ate of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says this. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever, he's casting him out of the garden. Why would God not want him to take the tree of life and live forever? Because in that fallen, sinful, unredeemed condition, that would be a disaster. So an important part of the curse was was that man, really for our own protection in one sense, were separated from the tree of life. Now, Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2, he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, and one of the promises he gives to the overcomers is that those who overcome will eat freely of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so now, in Revelation 22, we find the fulfillment of that wondrous promise. We find the restoration of what Adam forfeited because of his sin. But it's more than simply a restoration of what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. It's more than simply living forever in a sinless paradise. Rather, it is entering into this infinite and eternal glory of God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth. Infinitely better, infinitely better than even the Garden of Eden. This tree of life symbolizes four glorious truths about the new heaven and the new earth that we find here in this text. First of all, it symbolizes freedom from the curse, the curse that separated Adam and Eve from that tree of life. In heaven, we will have free access to eat all we like. It's that tree will be a constant reminder that the curse has been removed and that everything that was lost has now been restored in Christ and far more. But the second thing this tree of life symbolizes, it symbolizes perfect fellowship with God. It speaks of God dwelling in the midst of his people. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. How can a tree stand on both sides of the river? Well, again, remember the symbols of Revelation are are elastic. If the city represents the saints in heaven and the, and the, and the, the river is the, the Holy Spirit and the rich blessings that flow to us through the Holy Spirit, then this tree represents this abundant and eternal life that we'll experience in the presence of God. In Jesus' 
high priestly prayer in John 17. He is praying to the Father about, and he, he says this, he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the tree of life is that eternal knowledge, this perfect knowledge of God that we'll enjoy in heaven. It bears fruit every month, different kind of fruit, which speaks to the glory and the variety. Someone has asked, will we get bored in heaven? Well, just that, that little feature, different fruit every month, points to variety in, in, in heaven that we'll enjoy, feasting on God, constantly delighting in Him. The, the tree of life points to an eternal fellowship with God that never, ever will end. Thirdly, it's not just eternal, but it's, it's, it's abundant, it's rich, it's full. In the garden, had they eaten of that tree and lived forever in their sins, that would be a disaster. But in heaven, we're cleansed of our sins, and we can dwell in the presence of God, and we're invited to eat freely of that tree and to live in perfect, unbroken fellowship with our God. But it also points to the perfect wholeness that we're going to enjoy in heaven. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, some have asked, why do we need leaves for the healing of the nation in heaven? Does that mean there will be disease or problems for the nations in heaven? Of course not. In heaven, all will be perfect. But it represents the complete healing that the nations have received. That God will call men from every tribe and tongue and people and language around his throne. And as he gathers them from every nation, all the brokenness, all the lostness, all the, the ailments, the healing of the nations will be complete. Last week, in, during one of my question and answer sessions with my Indian pastor friends, they asked me, how old are you? And I said, I'm 63. And I could see this collective gasp. You're 63? I'm like, yes. And then I realized in the villages of India, very few 63-year-olds have the ability to do what I was able to do this past week. They're old, and they're worn out by life. Life is hard. And, and uh, someone told me the other day the average lifespan in these villages is about 55, which means when you see someone really, really old there, that means some really young people died. And so a 63-year-old who can, can, can still be, uh, have some modicum of, of, of strength left uh, was quite a surprise. But the leaves of these trees will be the healing of the nations, and 63 will be nothing. We have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. There's no more effects of the curse. There's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Those things that, that tear away at life, that promote death, everything in heaven contributes to life, fulfills it. There's healing. There's fullness of life. There's joy overflowing. There's there's wholeness that was lost when the fall took place, and it's infinitely greater. Not only will we never sin again, we can never sin again. We can never forfeit the glories of heaven. Well, John describes the river of life and the tree of life, and thirdly, he describes the saints of God worshiping him around his throne. Every last vestige of the curse on that day will be removed. Think about that. Think about that. The, the physical effects of the, death, of, of, of the, of the curse, the, uh, death and mourning and crying or pain, those are gone, but also those spiritual effects, this separation from God, this, this longing to be in his presence, this being in a dry and weary land where there's no water, that will be done away with. 
when God restored his presence to the people of Israel, even then he dwelt inside the temple in the Holy of Holies behind a veil, and only the high priest could come in once a year on the Day of Atonement, only with sacrifices. But then Jesus died on the cross, and the veil was torn from top to to bottom. And we are told in Hebrews that we have bold and confident access to his throne of grace. But let me ask you, how many of you have actually seen that throne of grace? See, we we enter by, by, by faith, right? But then we'll be there by sight. And we'll experience every fullness of the glory of being in the presence of our God. That is amazing to think about. That is wondrous to behold. His servants, it tells us, will worship before the throne of God and of the Lamb. Children, who are the servants that God is talking about in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3? The servants who are before his throne worshiping. It's not just the angels. It's all the saints of God. Every Christian in heaven will be around his throne, will be worshiping him. Now, there are those who wonder, when we go to heaven, are we going to do anything besides worship God? I mean, is that all we're going to do? Is it, like that might get boring? Well, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes our worship services are not everything we want them to be, and people can get bored. Because in reality, no matter how well we do everything that we try to do, We cannot bring you into the actual presence of God where you experience fullness that overflows. We don't have that ability. But on that day, it will be inexhaustible. And that that sense of the fullness, we could never, ever, ever get enough for 10,000 years, uh, as, as, as Newton wrote. We have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Not just no less days, but it won't seem like it's getting old. Even as there are 12 different fruit growing on that tree, there will be this unending joy in his presence. Now, we understand worship to mean everything that a Christian does. All of life is worship. Everything we do is under the Lord. So, uh, are we going to be serving him in some kind of uh, practical ways where we're employing gifts that he gives us? I believe we will. And it will all be considered worship before the throne of our God in heaven. But we'll never get bored. We will never get restless. We will never wonder, is there anything else to do? Because in heaven, we'll be before the throne. And we'll be experiencing joys that never, ever get old. Everything we do will be an expression of love. You don't have to to choose to love God. You don't have to muster up your affections. They just overflow. And you can't help it in his presence. Well, finally, the fourth thing that, uh, that, that, uh, uh, that John observes, most glorious of all, it says that God himself is the light of life. Look at verses 4 and 5. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Think of me for a moment. We'll see God's face. One of the commentators said, this is perhaps the greatest uh, of all of eternity's blessings, that we can see God's face. Remember in the Old Testament, God told Moses, no one can see my face and live. When John saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 in his glory, he said, it says, he fell at his feet as though dead. But when we get to heaven, we will see God's face and we will not be struck with terror. And we won't even feel uncomfortable. We will be filled with a wonder and amazement and a delight and adoration, but no terror, no fear. 
and not even discomfort. How incredible is that? Now, last week, I flew from western Nepal back to the capital of Kathmandu, and we were about 60 miles away from the Himalaya Mountains, which are somewhere around 27,000, 28,000 feet high, okay? 60 miles away, I could see these snow-capped mountains in the distance, and I was glued to the window for almost two hours. It's almost like I couldn't look away, even though I was looking at the very same mountains, you know, eventually one uh, set of peaks would pass and the next, but I, I couldn't stop looking. That's just mountains. What about the glory of God? For all eternity, we will be in his presence and uh, we will see his glory and we will be thrilled and we will be filled with great joy. Moses, Moses knew a, a, an intimacy with God greater than any other man except for Jesus Christ. And yet he still longed to see more of God's glory. And God said, uh, you can't see my face and live. I will cover your eyes and I will pass by and you'll see my back. And I'll declare my glory as I go by. So even Moses couldn't see God's glory in its full radiance. But he longed to. We will have no such unfulfilled longing in heaven. We will see and we will enjoy uninterrupted, unhindered fellowship with our God, but that's a blessing that's reserved for heaven. Then we will see his face and then we'll live. The second glorious reality that John describes as part of our fellowship with God is we'll bear his name. The enemies of the Lord Jesus, uh, you remember they bear the mark of the beast. And if you don't recall, we talked about 666. It's not a number we should be afraid of. Six is one shy of seven, which is perfection. And six repeated three times over, just magnifies the failure of the enemy. It's like someone walking around with an L across his forehead for loser. Because eternally, those who are with the mark of the beast are the biggest losers in the world. But in Revelation 3, verse 12, to the church of Philadelphia, the Lord says, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my own new name. We will bear his name. And so here we find in Revelation 22, that being fulfilled. Our names, the name of Jesus on our foreheads, meaning he owns us, we are his. In Revelation 14, the Lord looks, he sees the 144,000 standing before the Lord with his name, the name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Do you struggle with assurance, Christian? Do you find yourself wondering, am I really, truly in Christ? Or maybe, I I know I'm a Christian, but I feel like I'm just barely hanging on. I'm not so sure God can rejoice over me with singing as we read in Zephaniah 3. I I don't sense his love the way I should. uh, Many Christians linger, uh, uh, wrestle with what's called an orphan mentality uh, rather than delighting in our adoption as sons of the living God. But in heaven, there will be no orphan mentality. Romans 8 tells us creation groans with this longing for the revealing of the sons of God. On that day, we will be revealed and his names will be on our heads. 
And not only will he own us, we will enjoy perfect communion with him. We're born in his image. But because of the fall, that image was distorted. It wasn't lost, but it was distorted. And now we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so being redeemed, it's, uh, that image is being restored and renewed in us. Well, on that day, it will be fully perfected. And we will clearly and fully and wholly reflect the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will be like him, John says, because we'll see him as he is. Well, the third glorious reality says in verse 5 that he or we will dwell in his glorious light. Now, John is not interested primarily in astronomical phenomena when he says night will be no more and that we won't need the light of the lamp or the sun. He's not interested in astronomy here. He's interested in the glory of God. These spiritual realities that defy description. Chapter 21, verse 23 says, the city doesn't need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the, lam- the Lamb is its lamp. So, so, so what does it mean when John says the glory of God, or that the Lord God will be our light? God will be your light. What does that mean? I think part of what it means is that our view of God will be complete because today as we talk about God, we think about God, we read about God, we have a partial awareness of who he is, a partial understanding. But there's darkness. Remember the, 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 the hymn writer says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. There's, there's a darkness that uh, we're not able to see all the way through the fullness of his glory. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, John, or, or Paul writes, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Paul's not saying that we'll know everything there is to know about God, because God's inexhaustible. But we will know clearly, and we will know accurately who God is, and we'll spend eternity making new and glorious discoveries of who God is. But our view of God will not be hindered in any way by our own infirmities, by darkness, by veils, by any kind of limitation caused by our mortality or by our sin. God will be our light. We will see him clearly. We will see him as he is. We'll see him face to face. I think it also means there'll be no more mysteries. How many things do you find yourself just longing to know the answer to? And you have to go back and and, and rest in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children. And so you have to say, okay, these are the secret things. I'm not going to trespass. (laughs) But in that day, God's our light. And there are no more secrets. We see clearly all that we long to see, all we long to know, because God will be our light. And then the final glory, the final glorious reality that we'll enjoy in fellowship with the Lord is that we'll reign with him forever. 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, if we endure will reign with him. And the song of the Lamb around the throne in Revelation 5 says, you have made them, speaking of us, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth, speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. Johnson, Dennis Johnson, the commentator, says, the saint's ultimate destiny is not only priestly intimacy and service to God, but also royal authority and union with Christ will reign with him forever. Romans 8 says that we are fellow heirs 
with Jesus Christ, which means as he's exalted in glory, in some amazing way, we share his glory. As he reigns on his throne, in some amazing way, we reign with him. I, uh, what does that look like? What does that mean? I don't know. I, I, I frankly can't wait to find out, right? The, the, the title of this message is Paradise Restored. And the paradise we find described here is infinitely greater than the paradise of the Garden of Eden. In, in the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But there were times they didn't see him, and they were susceptible to other messages from the enemy. But on that day, in the new heaven and the new earth, he is ever-present, dwelling among his people. We will serve him, and we'll worship around his throne, and we will be filled with delights we cannot even contain. In the garden, sin invaded. It destroyed paradise. In heaven, Sin will never be a possibility. Paradise will be restored, and it will be permanent. That's what's in store for every true child of God. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, and you're hearing this, and you're going, that's interesting, or maybe you're going, who wants that? Uh, let me just ask you, isn't there something in here that, 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 that pulls on your heartstring just a bit? Isn't there something here that, in, in your own heart that longs for what I've just described? And you might say, well, well, the details are kind of weird. But yeah, to have the deepest longings of my heart satisfied, that, uh, that'd be awesome. The Bible tells us, right now we're under a curse, which is why there's those longings that are unfulfilled. And it also tells us that Jesus died on the cross to, to, rev, to, to satisfy the demands of God's justice, to, to overturn that curse that afflicts us in this life. He died to pay for the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl who would ever put their faith and trust in him. And my friend, he invites you today. He says, come to me, all you're weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He invites you to put your faith and your trust in him, to turn away from your own, going your own way and your own sin and your own authority and yield to his authority and find in him life that really is life. In chapter 22, verse 17, he says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who's thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So why won't you come? Because if you come to him, he promises he'll never cast you away. But if you reject the Lord Jesus, you remain under that curse. And all that we're reading about today, you'll never see any of it. Let me ask you, why would you turn away? Why would you turn away from such a gracious invitation? Why would you neglect such a great salvation? Is there anything that this world offers you that you think is actually better than what we've been looking at and reading of in Revelation 22? Jesus said, what will it profit man if he gained the whole world but forfeits his soul? What will you give in exchange for your soul? So I would urge you Jesus has come. Come to him. I, I encourage you, speak with one of us, one of the pastors or elders, or, or really just about anybody in this church. We'd be delighted to share with you more of what it means to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And kids, talk to mom and dad. Don't, don't put off coming to the Lord Jesus. 
for those of us who are in Christ, we, we live in this in-between period, don't we? We live between the, the, the already and the not yet, right? We're already cleansed and freed from sin, from its bondage and its penalty, but we are not yet ultimately delivered from its presence and the effects of our sins. We're already partakers of Christ and living water, but we are not yet fully drinking the very depths of that living water that our souls crave. We're already sons of God, but we don't yet see his face. And we don't yet, the, the, the sons of God, the full uh, revelation to all the world has not been made plain. We're already fa- fellow heirs with Christ, but we do not yet enter into the full benefits of what that means. So all that's promised we have in principle, but we only have it in principle, not yet in experience. And a sincere Christian, we we long to know Jesus more. We long to know Jesus as he is. We long for this this full-hearted enjoyment of the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And as long as we live in the already but the not yet, we're going to live with a longing that is not fully fulfilled. fulfilled. But on that day, all your affections, all your longings, all your, all your concentration, all your joy is going to be fulfilled in God through Jesus Christ. And that joy will be your constant, uninterrupted experience. So don't worry about what's it going to look like and what are we going to be doing Focus on this unending joy. And we can't even conceive of how glorious and wondrous it will be. But there will be no disappointment. No one in heaven will go, that's all there is? Don't don't we say that? When things happen in this life that we've been looking forward to and then it happens and it's like, that's all there is? Nobody will say that in heaven. So how should we respond to the vision we've just read of? Well, first of all, We read over and over again in Scripture, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Whatever your heart is longing for cannot be had in this life. And as soon as you fully realize that, it will move you to set your heart on that which comes only in Christ. The constant call of our Lord is lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. Set your heart on those spiritual realities, on those kingdom values, on that eternal perspective that changes the way you interact with everything in this life. Because when your treasure is in heaven and your confidence is fully and wholly set in Christ, you're not afraid to make sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom. What can we lose that we will not gain infinitely greater? You're not afraid to be despised or rejected by this world because you have a Savior who will embrace you, who will love you, who will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come reign with me in glory. And so we set our hearts on things above and we persevere in the midst of trial. We press on in hope. Over and over in Revelation, Jesus calls the churches to endure to press on. And the motivation that he holds out to them to endure are these precious promises of heaven, the glory of heaven, the the, the symbols that all point to the richness and the fullness and the satisfaction of the very deepest longings of our hearts. He holds those out to you and to me, and he says, press on, because this is what's waiting for you. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Whatever trials you might endure in this life is okay because you're just passing through. But the glory of heaven, far outweighs them all. Amen.